0: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I hope you're going to like this one today. I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, Katan Joshi is the name of today's guest, and I only knew Katan from his Twitter, actually. I love his Twitter, at K-E-T-A-N, capital J, capital O. Good follow if you're interested in the world, basically. He has uh, a lot of intriguing and interesting and sometimes counterintuitive thoughts about what's going on in the world. He's just written a brand new book about climate change. It's called Windfall. You know, his mission is to cancel the apocalypse. And I think that is a a good mission that we can all get behind. And I had the pleasure of reading Windfall over the weekend before I talked to Qatar. And it was seven o'clock in the morning. So it takes me a little while to get going. Oh my years of breakfast radio were out the window seven o'clock on a Monday morning during a pandemic my brain was not quite prepared so there's a few stumbly questions early on but you know what there's sometimes some stumbly questions on this podcast for completely other reasons that tend to happen later in the day so in some ways I was sharper and soberer than I normally am for the podcast so we did it at seven o'clock in the morning my time because Qatar was in Oslo Uh, where he's living at the moment. It was 11 p.m. his time, so we chatted through until about one o'clock in the morning. So I uh, really appreciate the fact that he took all that time to have a chat to somebody that, you know, he had really never met other than online. And I love this chat. I'd actually love to get him back on another time and really dig into his life a little bit more and how he came to, you know, have these opinions and have this experience and have this perspective on the world. But because he has such a great perspectives on the world, we spend most of the podcast talking about you know the pandemic we're uh, currently going through, the different effects it's having on different parts of our society, and of course, the parallels and implications for climate change and the challenges that we face there. So I think it's a really timely episode, to be honest, and I hope you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, I do recommend, yeah, Katan's book uh definitely one to check out if you're looking for climate change books to read and yes go to his go i mean start with his twitter start with his social media follow him in there get a vibe for the things that he writes about he actually wrote a piece uh about an episode of this podcast that i did with tim minchin which had some really interesting interesting perspectives can't say that interesting perspectives oh had a second go stumbled again three two one interesting perspectives on some things that came up in the Tim interview as well. So uh, if you like this show, uh, here's what you can do to help support it. Go to Patreon. patreon Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y is the address. And we are currently on a little mission to get to $5,000 in subscribers per month. Because if we can do that, we can afford to put out a brand new episode of Philosophy on a Monday up early on a Sunday, of course, for the Patreon subscribers. That's part of the bonus. You get the episode a day early and ad-free. So if that sounds like something you would like, go to the Patreon page, sign up for as little as a US dollar per month, and you can get the ad-free feed and a day earlier than everybody else. And so the idea is, uh, on Monday, we'll put out a brand new episode of Philosophy with a brand new guest. On Tuesday... My comedy podcast, Faux Fop, has returned and we're going to try, try, try our best to go weekly on that. So there is a new episode up with Dave Anthony. Episode 300 of Faux Fop is up with Dave Anthony. And hopefully uh, tomorrow when you're hearing this or the day after, I'm not going to do timelines, but on the Tuesday, uh, there will be another brand new episode with some guests that I haven't recorded yet of Faux Fop. Uh, Wednesday will be, of course, Tofop Day, Charlie and I, and our podcast Tofop, and you can find all the details of all these podcasts on tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com, alongside all James Fosdyke's brilliant art that he does for all the shows that we do. Thursday is our AFL-adjacent footy nonsense podcast called Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL podcast, and then on Friday, uh, when we get to the 5,000, we're going to do regular episodes of the catch-up editions of philosophy which is what we started obviously when the pandemic hit which was the idea that i'll find previous guests of the show and i will get back to them and have a second chat or a third chat in some cases maybe in a fourth chat at some stage about how their world has changed you know what else is going on um i'd love to do one with katan where we get you know a bit more into his background and uh you know how he came to you know Uh, be the thinker he is, be interested in the areas interested in. Uh, We didn't get as much time as I would have liked in this one, but we really talked for nearly two hours. So we had plenty of time. We just had plenty of maybe more important right now stuff to talk about. So five days a week is what we're aiming for. We're not going regularly to the catch-up episode on a Friday at this stage because we're not at $5,000 on our Patreon page yet, but we're having a little experiment at the moment about how that will feel and how will be managing to record it all and how Podcast Mike will be managing to put it all together. So um, last week we had a crack, uh, Jordan on the Monday and Celia on the Friday, Celia Picola, brand new episode with Seals. And then this week we're going to have a crack at it as well, just to get a feel for it. So Katan today and then up on Thursday on Patreon, Friday, everywhere else, a catch-up episode I've done with one of my great mates in comedy and just somebody I love absolutely to bits, Janet Kirkman. So... That will be Thursday and Friday this week. Then we might have a break for the catch-up episodes until we get closer to the $5,000 mark and we have to go regularly. So there you go. That's our plans. That's what we're doing. Uh, Thank you very much for your support. This is independent media and it only exists because of your support. So if you like the podcast, you are a contributor to the podcast podcast. Uh, If you can't contribute to the Patreon page, then, um, you know, like it on your app that you listen to or, you know, leave a comment, give it a rating, uh, pass it on to a friend. All those things really do make a difference, particularly now as this is, you know, pretty much my full-time job. So, uh, at the moment, it's unusual for a full-time job in that we're not making any money out of it, but... Uh, we'd like to. Maybe that's what we'd like to do. So we're trying to put in some aims and ideas and make everything a little bit more professional. We've got a great new website, tofop.com, and we're going to try to do the five-day-a-week release. And we're going to try to, uh, if this is the only thing that we are able to do right now, and it looks to me, you know, who probably won't be able to tune my stand-up in the next year, I'm guessing, um, I have to find some other things to A, do with my time creatively, but also B, to try to eventually bring some money in because I'm going to have to have some bills to pay and no real way to pay them so you know we thought why not uh two birds one stone or you know what that's a horrible expression I'm a vegetarian I don't want to kill birds uh let alone with stones but you know what I mean we're trying to make this a thing so thank you for helping make this a thing and if you if you find a way to help some more we would appreciate that too hope you enjoy today's episode And uh, welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And uh, I think this might be the largest time difference between uh, where I'm Great. recording and the guest is recording that I've done on the podcast so far. As far as I can work it out, it's about 7.11am on a Monday morning, which means it's probably about 11.11pm 11. 11 on a Sunday night where today's guest is. So this is how the podcast starts. I always ask the guests who they are. So let's start with that. Who are you? Hi, I'm Katan
1: Joshi. Do you need more information?
0: Now, Katan, you are in Oslo. Well, I I mean, over the next 70 minutes, I'll need more information, but you can start with that. That's fine. Uh, You're in Oslo, right? That's right. Yeah. So what what takes you to Oslo? How did you end up in Oslo?
1: So as you can hear from my voice, I'm Australian, um, but uh, we, uh, my family, we moved to Oslo about this time last year. Uh, my wife works at the University of Oslo, so she's a film academic. She has a post-doctorate. Um, and, yeah, she got a, a job at the University of Oslo, so, so we packed up and we moved to Oslo.
0: Did you know much about Oslo before <laughs> you went to Oslo? Because it feels like one of those countries that I'm quite – you know, I'm familiar with what Oslo is. I'm familiar <laughs> with, like, you know um, – about that that's about as much as i would say yep. it's like yep. i know it exists i don't know anything else about it yeah. so tell me did you know much
1: you, you you've like you've heard something about it on like a un diplomacy news story or something like that and <laughs> yeah. right i was pretty much the same boat uh so uh we googled it and we saw some pictures and we were like "Oh yeah it looks looks pretty nice um but you know oslo was not on the list of places that we were like we really want to move there. Uh, there are some other places like Berlin, for instance, that we both uh, love quite a lot. Um, we also love New York quite a lot, for instance. But, um, we, you know, Oslo came up and we were like, yeah, it looks good. Um, we, we had heard people telling us that it was expensive. Uh, and we had heard people telling us that it was cold. Um, and it is definitely expensive and it's not quite as cold as we thought.
0: And what about the language barrier? So what's the kind of English-speaking component of the population there, or are you just suddenly in a world where you're not speaking the language?
1: <laughs> it's both, strangely enough. Uh, so everyone speaks Norwegian pretty consistently here, uh, but they will switch over to English instantaneously and perfectly. They speak absolutely perfect English here. Almost everybody does. Uh if they detect that you're struggling with your Norwegian, uh, which is good in that you can get, go, you can just get your life done without any real problems with, with English here. But it's bad in that if you're trying to learn, um, you don't really get to practice because they're just like, this guy doesn't know what he's saying. I'm just going <laughs> to switch to English. Poor little Catan trying to say things to us. We'll just speak English with you. It's fine.
0: Uh, but well, so your wife's obviously, you know, teaching at a university. I, I, I'm very interested in what the pandemic has meant for Norway. What's it like in Oslo day to day? You know, are you in some sort of lockdown or shutdown? Has there been many cases? Are the universities still open? What's mm. going on?
1: Um, with the universities, it's been really tricky because uh, the. The way the year works here is is really, uh, it, there's a lot of swings, like ups and downs. So when summer holidays happen, everything shuts down, right? And so that's been from like July through to start of August, uh, which makes it easier in one sense because you're not trying to organize like classes and things like that. Um, but now that classes are coming back, it's really complicated because uh, cases here in Oslo... Uh, We had our first wave from March through to sort of um, April, May sort of thing, like a lot of other countries did in Europe. But our second wave, there was like a week period where it was trending upwards. And I was watching this. um, I'm sure we'll get into this, but I'm a bit of a data nerd. So I kind of use that to make myself, to try and make myself feel better. But it almost always makes me feel worse. Uh, And so I was watching the cases... (laughs) I'm like refreshing the, you know, the little website that tells you the numbers and I'm watching the cases go up. And I'm looking, I'm like calculating the differences each day myself. None of this was a good thing to do because I was just like, oh my God, this is all really bad. You know, the, Oslo and Norway are both on a really bad trajectory. And then just about a week into it, it all just leveled off, right? So so we're not decreasing in the number of new cases each day. and We're not increasing. Um, and so everyone's kind of in this position where it's like, everyone knows that we're not meant to be living a normal life as we normally would. But at the same time, it's not like we're on this nerve wracking trajectory where everyone's kind of seizing up and being like, Oh my God, I I, I feel like we have to be locked inside for as long as possible. Uh, it's this sort of limbo and we just don't know which direction things are going to go. And so like universities for instance are like, well, we just have to err on the side of caution and, and, and like, uh, have as many, you know, online classes as possible. But at the same time, they don't want to deprive students of the social element of when they start their year, particularly students who are starting university for the first time. Um, so <laughs> what's happening is that um, there are a lot of outdoor events for universities now. And it makes it feel like Everything is more busy than usual, but it's a bit misleading because all that's happened is that everything is just happening outside. It's actually a really nice summer here, right? Like it's uh it's pretty warm and sunny. And so you have like meetings outside and you have students like hanging out outside and suddenly it just feels like the city is just full of life. But in a sense, that's its own infection control because they want to do stuff uh, outdoors with people distance apart, which makes crowds look bigger um so there's a lot of funny contradictions yeah it's been it's a
0: strange can i ask about and i mean it's interesting because you're in a new place and you know not necessarily understanding what everybody's saying all the time i imagine and so your observations about the nature of you know the population you know of norway of oslo in particular you know, are limited by those things, but I'm going to ask you about them anyway because I don't get a lot of people on who are living in Oslo. So you you are now my Oslo expert based on the fact that you're the number one person who's spent time in Oslo who's been on this podcast. So you're going to have to have all my questions about it. But I'm interested in the nature of, um, uh, I'm interested in the nature of the people. What is it that your observation about the way that they react to a crisis like this is?
1: I couldn't help, of course, uh, compare, nor- like, Norway, Norwegians uh, to Australians, right? Because that's um, something that you do... Originally. Well, that was what I
0: was hoping to get to, so <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you've gone there.
1: <laughs> it was just the only... It was, like, the only baseline I could think about, because, of course, that's, that's the bad habit that every migrant has when they go to a different country. It's suddenly everything's... The new baseline is where you came from. And so... Uh, So two things really stuck out to me. Uh, One was how closely people followed not just the instructions of the government, but the tone and the mood of the government as well. So, um, you know, in in late February and early March, there was an odd air of dismissiveness about it. Um, uh, I was doing some language classes, like in-person language classes. and I remember one teacher that we had, She's like, oh, you know, in, in class one day, she's like, oh yeah, you know, we keep hearing about this coronavirus in the news. Um, but uh the flu kills X number of people every year, so it's not really something to be too worried about. She she almost sort of literally was hand-waving it away. And I was sitting there. I know it's easy to like retroactively imagine that you were thinking the correct thing when someone wasn't thinking when someone was thinking the wrong <laughs> thing. But I definitely I was definitely sitting there thinking like I think it might be worse than that, you know, it's not, it's not just the common cold. Um, And it was because the government was sort of not really saying a lot about it and not really imposing any sort of regulations either. And so what happened in Norway is everyone who had gone on their skiing holidays to countries like Italy and Austria, um, uh, sorry, not Italy, um, countries like Austria and Sweden and the Swiss Alps and things like that, they all flew back from their holidays in, in early March. And they were the main vector of cases coming into Norway. Of course, cases rose really quickly. The government changed. They flipped almost immediately, like overnight, you know, from nothing to um, child care's is closed. Uh, schools are closed. Universities are closed. Workplaces are closed. Um, public transport uh, was shut down, I think, uh, for like a, a day or two. But then they... They just said, don't take public transport, we're going to leave public transport open and running for people who need it, uh, for essential workers. Um, all events, all uh, like just every single possible gathering of people shut down and, and people really obeyed it. People freaked out for a day or two. We had our toilet paper has run out of the supermarket moment. But the really interesting thing was that it lasted about two or three days. And then it, that was it. If you remember with Australia, that was like almost months, you know, when uh, like people were were um, uh, ha- like going crazy about trying to get toilet paper. Um, I, I came up with this idea for, you know, it would be great if you could have like a toilet paper index uh, that just measures um, sales of toilet paper as a level of like public concern about coronavirus because it seems like a good metric, you know um
0: yeah i mean particularly because it's it's in in the great way that we do measure these sort of metrics i always love that a lot of the time they don't really make sense or have any correlation to real life like Mm. toilet paper was the one thing in Australia that we were constantly being guaranteed we're not going to run out of this we make toilet paper (laughs) in Australia the factories are continuing to make it this is the one thing that you don't need to hoard there are other things you will not be able to access but for some reason you are going to hoard this thing that we (laughs) are going to be able to make widely available for the entire time the pandemic is going on so yeah um, what were your external observations because I'm very interested in I mean, you're, you've been a keen observer of Australian culture in a whole bunch of ways, you yeah. know, over your, you know, career, and that's how I came to know you about from your observations, writing about, you know, Australian politics, Australian culture, you know, um, but you're, you've obviously been away from it, looking, looking back on it. What have you been? What have your observations been about how Australia's handled this current crisis?
1: Yeah, I, I've paid. Close attention to two things because they just kind of my experience. Um, the first one obviously is uh, climate change. How uh, um, the Australian government's attitudes towards fossil fuels has played into how they're framing how they're going to respond to this to this crisis, uh, to the to the COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later. But yeah, like they're, they're just like, oh, great, we need we need more gas and fossil fuels. That's going to be our response. <laughs> it's like, that's just completely wild to respond to one public health crisis by making another one worse. Um, but (laughs) that's sort of expected in a way. One thing that I didn't quite see coming from more of a cultural perspective than a government perspective is how race and racism would play into, um, some of the responses to, uh, how we feel during a pandemic collectively, um, how Australians feel as a country. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. One, one is, of course, the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, we had it inculcated into us that a gathering of people equals the spread of coronavirus, right? Uh, when I say we, I mean uh, Australian citizens. And so we felt that if people gathered in a crowd in a protest that would mean that there would be a second wave of coronavirus anywhere that those protests occurred. Uh, and part of the reason that happened is because, uh, there was a sort of individualistic, like moralistic tinge to, to Australia's response, right? Uh, you have to do the right thing. And if you're not doing the right thing, you're killing grandmothers by spreading coronavirus, right? Uh, the problem lies with individual behavior. Um, and if something goes wrong, it's because people were bad. Um, you've, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, like, covid you know, being used. Like, you see it in social media, you see it in traditional media. Um, and so the Black Lives Matter protest came along um, about a month after there were these, like, anti-5G, anti-vaccination protests. If you remember, this happened in May. These anti um anti it was like anti-5G, anti-vaccination, anti-mask, and a bunch of other all things all smooshed together. They were just like, let's all just come together as one protest because they kind of admitted that they're all part of the, roughly the same feeling. Um, and there was not a strong police response to those at all. In fact, the um, uh, politicians and health authorities and police authorities, when asked about it, were just like, yeah, we can't really stop them, you know, uh, we don't like it, but we can't really stop them. And then the Black Lives Matter protests came along, um, and they really did try to stop them. Um, they took them to court. They took organizers to court. There was a really strong media campaign against them, which I detailed in a few blog posts. Um, and I think, and I think that comes down to to race and, and racism within um, a bunch of. Uh, it's really ingrained into a bunch of cultures and systems in Australia. Um, Media is one of them. And then, and then the other thing that I, that I noted was um, how shaming is used. So uh, shaming individuals for breaching rules. For instance, uh, there was the case of two young uh, Queenslanders who ended up on the front page of the Courier Mail one day. Um, Their names were there. Their faces were there. um, their social media posts were used in news stories Um, they had journalists waiting outside the front of their home, blocking them in their car, uh, not allowing them to get out so they could sort of tap on their window and ask questions. Um, and they're two young black girls. And, uh, what I did was I, uh, fired up this old, um, uh, program that I had, which I actually used when, if you remember, um, there was a a young engineer called Yasmin Abdelmajid. Um, she she had a really wild backlash against her and I used this sort of um, browser extension thing to collect comments um, en masse so you can collect like thousands and thousands and thousands of Facebook and Twitter comments um, and you then extract, you use this um, word analysis thing to just extract the emotions and the feelings and words people use. Um, and of course, like with these two young girls, the language was like, deport them, um, send them back to wherever they came from. Um and and it was there was a whole bunch of really nasty racist and sexist stuff in there as well, of course, as you as you imagine. Um and I think that really terrified me. I was just like it's one thing to sort of have this tinge of like, we're angry at BLM protests, but we're not angry at um we are sort of we sort of scoff at these other protests. Um but then, to have it turn into such an individualistic um life destroying thing um, for a couple of people who made mistakes that many many other people are making the same mistakes, but they're not getting the same treatment on the front pages uh that actually that really got to me um i, I that really just made me unsettled because it, because I think that that should have received way more opposition and way more backlash to it to the, than it did at the time, particularly within that industry, the media industry.
0: So mm. yeah, uh, there's so much that I'd love to unpack here. And I, I know it's going to be one of those conversations. So we're going to miss stuff along the way because there's about 15 things just in that answer that I would love to talk about <laughs> yeah. more. But uh, let's w- try to work backwards in it, which is firstly that the media absolutely has to take number one responsibility for that because, you know, there is a a whole bunch of people that that could have been, Mm. you know, could have been those girls. There are people, you know, not doing the right thing. We can get to that in a minute as well. You know, the idea of individual responsibility versus, you know, government and societal responsibility in general. But they're but for the grace of, you know, whatever go a lot of people, right? So for starters, these two aren't two people who've done something in exceptional circumstances. They just happen to have been doing something outside the rules. They were the ones that, you know, got exposed in this case. Then there's a the demographic of who they are, how their names were exposed in a way that, say, the Aspen Ski Party weren't exposed or, you know, plenty of other cases around the country haven't been exposed in the same way. But at the end of the day, it's the editor of the newspaper who decides we're going to put this on the front page. We're going to put out their names. And these people aren't idiots. They know what is going to happen next. They've read the they they read the comments on, you know, nice articles about people who don't look like white Australians and seen how racist the comments get. They've got to know when they go fishing in this piranha pond what they're going to get in response. So, First and foremost, we've got to, like, you know, put the responsibility at the feet of the media itself. Now, this is such a huge topic, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but I also don't want to go over the, you know, go past it too quickly. Can we talk about the idea of just that institutionalised racism in the Australian media?
1: Yeah, so it was, a funny, it was funny when it happened, because a few other things happened at the same time, which link in very nicely to, to that issue, Um, one thing was a report came out, uh, from, uh, I think it's called diversity in media Australia. I, sorry, I forgot the name of the group. Um, but it was a really great report that just sort of said what I think many people just know intuitively, uh, which is that it's, it's not an industry that is representative of Australians as as a community. Uh, and I tend to run with that a little further and say that lack of representation feeds into what you get it feeds into the words used and the stories chosen and the stories ignored uh because people don't have a stake in it uh, who are creating those stories uh and it's dangerous territory because the people who are in the industry read that and they're like are you calling me racist are you saying that i'm like some sort of donald trump uh pauline hansen figure who hates every like Uh, and it's like, no, no, that's not really, uh, that reaction in and of itself becomes a bit of a roadblock, uh, because people really don't like being called racist. Um, my God, people just like, uh, it really makes it tough to talk about this. Um, because people hear that and they, and they seize up like, but it's like I never thought I could ever be close to that category, uh, and they mean it too. Like it's a genuine sense of anxiety and horror at at having heard that. Um, that there's there's they've got a bi- they've got a binary in their head. There's the monsters who are racist who stand on buses and yell abuse at people, and then there's everyone else who's not racist. Um, and the idea that there's a spectrum or that there are systems that you. That you sort of end up sucked into, even though you're a good person, you sort of end up helping these systems. Uh, it's really, it's really tough to empathize with that lack of understanding. But of course, my best experience with it is, I'm a man, and I have grown up experiencing the benefits of of that come with that. Um, a, a, you know, another example is, I'm a I'm a man who grew up in a, in a wealthy country, you know, um, I, I had a good education. Um, I, I, I sort of have this voice that like people hear and they're like, Oh, he must he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> but people who know more than me, um, like one of my relatives might have like a strong Indian accent and people hear her to- speaking and she's like a thousand times more knowledgeable than I am, but she wouldn't get the same reception that I would. Because they, they they see that oh Catan's a man and he's got the voice. <laughs> so, you know, I, I I've i I've I'm not a I'm not a sexist man, but I've but I've benefited in my life from systems that are that are quite misogynistic and sexist. Uh, and it's and like I can imagine a time in my life No, actually, no, there was definitely a time in my life when if somebody had told me what I just said, I would have been like, Oh, how dare you, you know, I'm not a I'm, I'm one of the good men that like, how dare you? Uh, but you've got to step past that and go, okay, right. I'm not a, I'm still, I'm still probably an okay person, but that doesn't mean I'm not the beneficiary of an unfair system. Um, and it's, it's a similar problem with managing that same reaction with race in, in Australian media, I think.
0: I I think you know. In the case of the girls from Queensland, you had, I think, a combination of not only were they women, they were you know, you know, people women of color, mm. and they were also young, which are the three big categories that old media really like to, you know, go after. So it was a bit of a perfect storm in that regard. So I want to go back to the Black Lives Matter protests themselves because they, in themselves, became politicized they were a political protest, of course and a political protest you know that started in america you know this time around but you know when, when people were marching in australia they were marching you know i think partly probably you know for what was happening in america and then you know having at least an understanding of the terrible terrible things that are happening in australia that perhaps a lot of the rest of the time we go about our lives just not concentrating on enough it's interesting to me that we speak after the weekend of uh, i'm an afl football fan but one of the great dark stains on our game is the treatment of adam goods in recent time and then over the weekend there was an article by a, a, about a, a footballer called robert muir who was an indigenous footballer who had experienced terrible racism throughout his life and his career and and they outlined the disastrous effects of that but at the same time on saturday night they had the uh, you know, what, the Dreamtime game, you know, in the Northern Territory in front of a largely Indigenous crowd with a welcome to country, which is one of the most powerful speeches you'll ever see in your life. In fact, I might even try to link it in the podcast if I can get permission because it's just incredible words and incredible, you know, I had Briggs on this show and he was talking about how, how little, you know, we acknowledge even the minor details, when COVID first started and they were saying, you know, if you're over 70, don't leave the house. And if you're Indigenous and you're over 50, don't leave the house. He said they just brush over that. The, the fact that there is a 20-year difference between those things is just so commonly part of the language that we have every day. So there's part of me that says, OK, well, if for any reason we can get people out to protest and pay attention to this is an incredibly good thing. You know, regardless of the circumstance we find ourselves in the world, you could possibly even make the argument, this is how important people think this issue is, that we are willing to, you know, risk this public health crisis that we're going through to then, you know, go out and protest about this. That I, I think all, you know, I, I respond to pretty well. But then the ongoing politicisation of those marches becomes something else again. You know, the fact that now 42% of people on a recent survey think that the Melbourne outbreak had was linked to the Black Lives Matters protest, which it, it isn't, that's just completely incorrect, but that becomes part of the media narrative and then the public narrative afterwards. Can we talk a little bit about that?
1: So I couldn't help myself. I mean, what I, what I started doing when all of that started happening was um, documenting the the nuts and bolts of what you just described, which is... Why do people think that the second wave of coronavirus in Victoria was linked or caused directly by Black Lives Matter protests? Uh, and when you actually start getting into the nuts and bolts of it, there are a few little really consistent things that if you've been following climate change uh for a decade, you start to you immediately recognize, right? <clears throat> so the first thing was trying to confuse between linkages and causality. So I'll explain what that means, because neither of those words are particularly meaningful. Um, someone who attended a Black Lives Matter protest and who had coronavirus uh, either before, during the protest, or after the protest would be reported on as Black Lives Matter protester linked to coronavirus outbreak. Right. So, so it, totally reasonable, I think for somebody to read that headline and go, oh man, you know, there was a, there was an outbreak of coronavirus at the Black Lives Matter protest. But what the article could be describing is someone who got coronavirus before a protest, went to their workplace, uh, and then went to a protest afterwards, wearing a mask, standing two meters apart from people at all times, being outside with no shared ventilation of air, uh, and essentially not transmitting that virus to a single other human being uh, in this large crowd of people chanting loudly. Um, and so that confusion was exploited to incredible effect uh, by in, in the aftermath of the protest because when you, just statistically, when you have such a large number of people uh attending this activity then you will always have a a non-zero number of people who attended who had coronavirus like it's just pure statistics that's totally unavoidable uh which meant there was just no way that you could avoid these articles coming out saying uh black lives matter protester diagnosed with coronavirus um, and of course, like I, like I did with the previous thing, I tracked the comments and it was people saying stuff like, here comes a second way. This is it. And, you know, we told you this was coming. Uh, we told you that the protest was going to cause this. Uh, and of course, um, almost nowhere in the world has an outbreak of coronavirus been linked to a black lives matter protest. And I find that a really, really astonishing fact, because if you think about it, this was sort of a massive global experiment uh in the spread of this very specific wildly infectious virus um in this situation uh that was very controlled like every single black lives matter protest was on a street uh and the majority of them had good infection controls um uh, particularly in australia where people put effort into like you know um the organizers of the of the one in victoria um, engaged with indigenous um, health services and things like that to make sure that they had, uh, you know, all the information on hand. They handed out masks, they handed out hand sanitizer. Um, and what we know now is that you can have a infection-controlled protest with a very low chance of the transmission of coronavirus. And that should should be an important thing about democracy, right? That should be an important thing saying... At a time when governments probably require some pretty strong scrutiny because they might try and sneak some stuff under the carpet um, during a time when all of our attention is distracted and a, essentially a time when protest could actually be a very important voice for people, uh, it should be really a lot more widely acknowledged that we know that it's much safer than was originally anticipated but of course it's not right. Like uh, we saw um, there was another anti-racist protest planned. And of course the whole narrative started up again um, where it was uh, the sort of stories were about like a really strong police response. We're going to crack down on these individuals doing the wrong thing. And they're just being arrogant and they, all they care about is their little, you know, a little pet political issue. Um, all those things just fail to acknowledge that anti-racist protests are about health too um specifically it was about the the health and safety of, of non-white people in a bunch of different countries who are suffering death, pain and injury uh that is totally avoidable and i mean why are we fighting coronavirus? we're fighting coronavirus because we want to take away death, pain and injury that we can avoid that we that we know how to fight um anti-racist protests uh arguing precisely the same thing but they're treated very very differently uh so yeah that's my summary of it Uh, i think um uh i i tried so hard you know to to yell and scream about it many many other people uh did as well and I, i i just worry a lot that i don't think any of it sunk in uh, I think that we're going to reach another point. So so there's actually a um, climate march is planned in September. Uh, and that's going to be a really similar thing, I think. What we're going to see is um, the same narrative emerge uh, where it's like, you shouldn't even be doing this. Once it happens, we're going to see a whole bunch of things saying coronavirus links to climate change protest. Uh, and then once all of that boils away and we sort of look back on it and we go oh okay well it didn't really cause a second wave um there won't be much of a change in institutions like uh media and um authorities like the police in changing their attitudes towards it sorry that's a really dark way of putting it but um i just i wish they would change no yeah. well
0: i i mean it's I, th- this is the sort of dark commentary i've invited you on the show for <laughs> the time, so don't don't worry about it it's fine it's. I mean, sure. It's not you know a great way for me to start my Monday <laughs> morning full of optimism, but that's okay. I'll get over it. I knew what I was getting myself into. Um, we're obviously going to talk about climate change a lot, and I. But and there's you know obviously links between the two, and this final question on the protests and um, COVID, and then we can move on to some other stuff. But it, it, I assume you're probably going to suggest it's linked as well, which is something that you were tweeting about a lot yesterday around, and this is something that I'm fascinated about when it comes to not only our COVID response, but I think more importantly, our response to climate change, which is the levels of individual responsibility versus, you know, what we can actually achieve as individuals versus what governments and institutions can achieve.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a a funny one it's funny describing all the little squabbles and fights that happen in the climate action community to people who aren't in that community. Cause they're just like, I didn't think that you guys argued about stuff like, uh, this sort of idea of like climate action advocates is very, uh, one sort of well-tuned, uh, movement across the world. And I think that sort of underestimates how, how, um, uh diversities from many different perspectives so um in this particular context you have a lot of people who are in the individual action crowd on climate change right where they say you've got to change your carbon footprint i listened to your interview with uh craig craig Rucastle, and he talks a lot about this not just in that interview but um like in interviews elsewhere and um uh I was a little bit nervous going into his show because I was like, oh no, it's one of those carbon footprint shows where it's just like you gotta recycle your cups and you gotta like walk to the shops <laughs> and that's it and then it's all done. But he's so far from that. Like he has so first of all, he acknowledges um that it's not sufficient, but that it's still a very good thing to do. Like it's actually a really, really powerful action to take in your life. Uh and then that actually feeds through into something else. Uh, it, something flips in your brain. You're like, I'm invested in this. I'm a participant in climate action. Um, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay. Uh, well, I chose not to drive to the shops, but um, you know, Glencore is still building uh, a ludicrously gargantuan coal mine. So maybe if I want my action to mean something more... I can also take my money out of this super fund that funds Glencore doing their evil coal mine or something like that. Um, I don't want to pick on Glencore, but you know, you can just pick any name and it's they're sufficiently evil, you know. Um uh, so to link that back to, to COVID, right? Um, individual action to fight coronavirus matters a lot, obviously. Um people have to people have to choose to socially distance for instance they have to choose not to uh you know um stand close to people on public transport or they have to choose to cancel that birthday party that they wanted to have or whatever um but the interesting thing is that that doesn't lead into a mindset that then lets you go and I'm also going to divest my super money from uh, any pub that is breaking. <laughs> like, there's no real sort of uh, secondary cloud of things that you can do, um, which makes which then starts to make it really complicated and tenuous, right? Because when it comes to climate, individual actions coalesce. They, they all smoosh together, um, in, and they make you feel like part of something bigger. Everyone who's installed solar panels on their rooftop in Australia has participated in creating a totally new electricity generation machine, um, that is comprised of, uh, the willpower, the minds of Australian citizens, right? Uh, it's this one seven gigawatt, uh, power generation thing that is, um, diffusely spread like a flat pancake across the surface of Australia, And it's owned by citizens who all made that decision to go for whatever reason, it may have been for climate action, it may have been for economics or whatever, um, but they all did it together and you can group them all and say, you have actually been more powerful than the sum of your parts. Um, And, you know, a couple of days ago, I was just checking Australia's data on this um, and like solar rooftop mostly rooftop solar so not not like big companies building solar farms out in the in the desert um got up to about i think it was like 30 to 40% of australia's generation in the middle of the day um that was unimaginable 10 years ago with coronavirus i don't get that same sensation of community action that that like where people come together and they go we we did this all together um, as a as a as a group as a crowd as a community to fight this virus, um, and we can be proud of that. And I think part of that is because of these narratives of first of all of like the problem comes from people who are rule breakers, um, and the second part comes from it. I think an excessive police response. That um, just to give you another example of the difference between Australia and Norway um, when the restriction came online here there was no restriction on being outside so you could you could just walk out into the middle of a park and sit in the middle of a field and lie on the ground and stare at the sky um and that was actually a really healthy important thing to do um you know we we were at home uh our, our kid was not in childcare. she's um one and a bit she's one in um 1.7 now um and we, we use decimal points for our kids' ages because you know that's what nerds do. Because <laughs> you're yeah. a data nerd, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, this whole thing about individual responsibility when it comes to coronavirus, I think is actually starting to go a little bit wrong. Um, I think that I think that you've got to sort of take a a community-driven approach from the outset for it to be to have this really sustainable, long. Um, infection control behavior change that sinks into people. It really gets baked into them so that you don't have this like swinging up and down between like, Oh, we've got total freedom. Oh no, we've got total lockdown. I hate this. Oh no, we've got total freedom. Um, I think that you need to have a strong community response. That was the idea with Sweden. So they said, we're not going to impose, like we're not going to use like laws to impose strong lockdown. We're going to let people decide to change their behavior and they strongly encouraged it um it didn't work in sweden because uh Mm. they had this huge upswing in in deaths um a lot of really it's so tragic looking at the looking at the at what happened there um so i just add that in as a bit of a caveat because you (laughs) it's a bit of a spectrum initially you need to have really strong um because for sudden change you need to have laws um you need to have uh consequences for doing the wrong thing but for really long term change you need to have community driven approaches um, climate change is of course long term change uh so that's now when we're sort of in the thick of it you know like how many months are we into this thing like um and we there might be a vaccine um if there is a vaccine there's still another years ago before it's um, approved and manufactured and being sent around the world and then on top of that there's probably more time for it to actually become effective it's still long term we still need to think about how this change happens in a way that is just baked into our souls and we're just like like, it just comes automatically we do it because we are driven to it, we're motivated by it Um, not because we're worried about the consequences uh, of doing the wrong thing Um, and it, and it just links back into another difference between Norway and Australia. Um, Norway has had really good employment support. So, um, for companies to pay people, um, even if they're not coming into work because they're quarantining due to coronavirus, for instance, um, and also really good leave, um, leave management tools essentially. So, uh, when the lockdowns happened, um, some people could work from home, some people couldn't, Uh, some people tacitly could work from home, but probably shouldn't have been because they had like, you know, they had kids or they had other responsibilities. Um, and so there was really good support, which meant no one was really compelled to play around the edges and be like, well, I've got a bit of a cough, but you know, I'm not going to get tested because if I get tested, that means I can't go into work for two days and I'm on a zero hour contract and I'm going to lose money. Um, and I worry a little bit that Australia has not um has not done particularly well. Uh obviously one extra note on that is that a lot of uh Norway's government support is funded by uh, a world leading oil industry. So, you know. That into, don't forget that.
0: I mean, life is so complicated. And I did say that I did say that I was done with linking uh climate change and uh, coronavirus, but I've got one yeah. more question before we Uh, make a clean break, which is uh, science. Mm. So, you know, obviously there has been times when you could make the argument that this has been a good time for science, that we're trusting doctors, that we're trusting medical experts. And yet there's also been the rise of the anti-science, the pseudoscience, the distrust in science, and the very fact that, of course, science is a method not a perfect answer to things which means that in oslo they say go out and you know lay around in the sun because we think this is a good thing for you to do whereas in you know victoria at the moment they're saying you know you can only leave your house for an hour a day both of them have scientists who are you know helping make those decisions and then uh, so w- when we come out of this in regard to climate change and you know what we think about science, do you think we're going to, the world's going to be a position where we're more trusting of science or is this just a manifestation of the exact same problems that we're having with climate change that we're experiencing with coronavirus but just in a shorter period of time?
1: I don't want to give you another sad answer. This is actually a positive answer but it's going to sound sad at the start of it. Um, I don't think that we... <laughs> I don't think that we are... <laughs> going to be more trusting of science right so i don't think um i don't think we're suddenly going to be like oh okay um what we learned from coronavirus is that uh scientists when they warn about something being a potential disaster they actually freaking mean it um and like you should listen to them when they make that warning because they're not doing it for shits and giggles they actually are freaking out um that would be really nice if, if if suddenly everyone um reacted that way but i think I think that people already sort of knew that, to be honest, with climate change. Um, I, I think the majority of people, certainly now, uh, maybe not so much 10, 10 years ago, uh, understand what the science is saying. Uh, they certainly under, they certainly trust that science is, is giving the correct predictions about the future if we don't act. Um, I think the problem more lies in... Uh, how we think about crisis. Uh, the, the the analogy I used the other day was, um, you know, can you imagine if we had like a net zero target for coronavirus by 2050? Uh, where instead of... <laughs> so instead of saying like, instead of saying like, oh, um, we need to take decisive action to get these cases right down to zero straight away because people are dying. Uh, politicians said, oh, look... This is obviously an issue. Uh, and but but we don't wanna take action too fast, um, because it'll really disrupt your life and you like being you like to go to those shops and you like being outside and you like doing all this other stuff, you like going to your job, and we don't wanna make you unhappy, so we're gonna we're gonna think about implementing social distancing by twenty thirty. Uh, we're gonna close down public transport by twenty forty-five, uh, and then by twenty fifty uh what we'll see is a reduction in the cases of coronavirus hopefully down to zero we're not sure uh but we've got a long time we've got three decades uh (laughs) to fight this thing uh and it'll be fine (laughs) it's a spurious comparison but it gives you an idea of like um how the baseline response to climate change has been like um yeah it's a crisis but um We'll act on it. will act on it in this ridiculously slow and um, like excessively cautious way. Whereas with coronavirus, people are like, "Oh, this is a crisis, and we need to act now. We need to get this done right now." Um, now, of course, the difference is um, that what you want with climate action, because of course, action has to last. It has to be baked into our species. It has to last forever. Things that we do on climate change have to become fundamental to humanity for the rest of our existence as a species if they're not then we'll just create the same problem again um so that means like redefining a lot of really huge things whereas with coronavirus it there's a little bit of like let's just make things all right for a few months and then a vaccine will come and save us um i really really hope that a vaccine does come and save us but i but i also have a feeling that it might half save, like it might be like a 50% effective or whatever. Like, you know, this this is a really common thing with vaccines. Is the first one is not like um is not a hundred percent effective. Um you just have you have the first one that's 50% and then they improve it, you know, like technology, it improves over time. Uh so yeah, basically, um I think that uh the relationship with science won't change very much i think that we i think that we really uh i think the relationship with crisis will change
0: um so well let's talk so we're going to you've written a book that's um all about yeah. uh, you know climate change and i want to get to that in a minute but um this this show you know at least the conceit of this show is that I ask people if they have a life philosophy of some kind. So I want to ask you that and get a little bit of a sense of you know who you are and why this you know issue has is mm. important to you has become important to you. Why you wanted to sit down and write a book about it. So tell me firstly, do you have a life philosophy of some kind?
1: Yeah, I do. It changes a lot. Uh, <laughs> like it's generally whatever I'm thinking the most about at a particular point in time. Um, if you'd asked me that same question, like 10 years ago, I would have said something like, oh, it's, I love science and I love, you know, (laughs) I love evidence and and rationality and logic. Um, (laughs) I still love all of those things quite a lot. Um, I think that they're very good tools for doing, um, useful things that help people live better lives. Um, but they're not my philosophy anymore. Um, they're not like the centerpiece of, of why I do what I do. Um, at the moment, the thing that I think the most about is, is the ability to change the future. Um, and so if you think about it, you know, you're, you're always standing at a fork in the road. Um, you're always standing at a, at a pivot point between one particular future or another. Um, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Uh, I'm not sure if you watch this show. Um, I didn't see it get a lot of um, response or coverage, but it's called Devs. Have you heard of it? No. So it's made by a guy called Alex Garland. He he uh made this movie called Annihilation, if you if you remember that. That was on Netflix. Do you yeah. yeah. Um it's
0: Did he do The Beach as well, Alex Garland? Yeah, possibly.
1: No. I don't know. Yeah, possibly um anyway, it's a science fiction show, um, on HBO. Yeah. And um I don't wanna provide many spoilers, but basically this the um this is revealed in the first episode, so it's not really a spoiler, basically, but Uh, It's a show in which a big evil tech company in San Francisco um, comes up with a quantum computer that can calculate um, the relationship between atoms on a a subatomic level, um, basically, which means you can get like an accurate video essentially of history just by looking at the deterministic relationship between um, atoms. Sorry to to lay this on you on a Monday morning. (laughs) um...
0: no no this is is much better than the impending destruction of the world that we started with and we're sure to get back to it for this brief moment i'm happy with this
1: okay so the idea is everything's deterministic right an atom can only influence another atom in a specific way and if you learn that relationship then you can go okay well we can then calculate with a powerful enough computer um, footage of uh, Jesus being crucified on the cross. Right. Um, but if you think about it, you can do that backwards in time, but you can also then do that forwards in time, uh, which means you can, you can predict one minute in the future, the atoms in my body are going to interact in certain, in a certain way that I'm going to say the word potato in exactly one minute. And because it's deterministic, there's nothing else that I could ever say. Um, like it's just, there's, uh, the calculations say that that's what I'm going to do. Um, and the laws of the universe determine that there is absolutely nothing else that I could do. Um, we're on rails is the language, the word that it's got, it's got, um, it's got the guy with the mustache from, um, Parks and Rec. Um, what's his name? Uh, he loves whiskey. um, The comedian. Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah, The uh, character's name is Ron Swanson on on, on that show, but uh, his real name is Nick something.
1: Yeah, he, I should know that. He's in completely. he's in this show as like this um, kooky taxi. Nick or, Offerman, that's the guy. And I, it was hard to take him seriously. this show I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, but it's a great show. I actually, I actually really highly recommend it. It's very, it's very beautiful, but in the show. There's this tension between that philosophy, which is that we are on tracks, right? The things that we do are essentially unrelated to the future because there is no decision that you could make today, right now, that would change the path of the future. Uh, and the other uh, philosophy is that you actually do make decisions. Uh, on a quantum level, you, you actually make decisions. You decide between, you know... Um, picking up this bottle of water or dropping it onto the ground in the next two seconds. Right. Um, and what happens when you do that is a parallel universe is created. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm watching the show and I'm like, this is great sci-fi concept, blah, blah, blah. And I did some reading on it and parallel universes are not that weird, uh, a, a, a sci-fi concept, right? Like it's a, it's actually a pretty well-respected theory within, um, theoretical physics, uh, saying that essentially, um, There are different universes where different outcomes happen uh you're in one universe you don't know which universe you're in um copies of you are created when you make decisions uh and what that means is that you actually have choice um things are deterministic historically things could only have gone one way but in the future you don't know which bubble universe bubble that you end up inside right Um, and so what I realized when I was watching this show is that this is how people talk about climate change. They talk about a good future or a bad future. Um, I think the original title of the book was something along the lines of like good future or something like that. Um, because I was thinking constantly about, uh, why we tend to fall into traps of thinking that we're on rails. I just, I, and the more I, the more I think about it, the more I hate it uh the idea that we have no control over our fate um just to link it back to a slightly more well-known piece of pop culture uh there's a line in Terminator 2 um where Sarah Connor um says that we have no fate but what we make for ourselves um there's this little bit in it where she falls asleep and she wakes up and she's chiseled the words no fate into the into the table um as part of her dream where she's imagining this future of nuclear war um where people are wiped out you know the nuclear blast appears over new york um and she's sitting you know she has a stream where she's watching um it's really it's a really horrific scene for for such a you know popular mainstream movie but um this playground full of kids gets wiped out by a nuclear blast and she's there you know um banging on the chain link fence saying you know you've got to run you've got to run um and It's funny how things like that stick with me because um, that really defines what I do, which is that um, we can still change the future. Um, There are some parts of climate change that are locked in. Um, uh, we, We can't really, without some technological advances, take away some of what's already locked into the atmospheric systems on planet Earth. Like There's just not a lot we can do about it which means we need to put a lot of time and effort into adapting to the current changes that are happening to the climate. Um, but you can still also prevent uh, some damage in the future. And then, you know, I think about the past and I think about like this feeling that I had about science and logic and I'm a logic guy. I'm so much smarter, <laughs> all this stuff. Like I think a lot of people in my position in, who sort of had the same like cultural uh, exposure that I did, Became that guy for a while, you know the, you know the sort of, ooh, I'm an atheist and that makes me really, I'm um, really clever because I'm an atheist. <laughs> and that's the sort of thing. I was reading like Richard Dawkins and all that kind of stuff.
0: Richard Dawkins is certainly one of those, and it's just certainly one of those things that you either read Richard Dawkins and you become some sort of lifelong. <laughs> Yeah, evangelist you know for Richard Dawkins or you've read Richard Dawkins and now you have a period of time you look back on with a little bit of embarrassment where you're like oh that book I'm not saying it's a bad book I'm saying that it made me into a bad person for a while
1: yeah that's such a good way of putting it and so um but really the through line the the healthy through line uh that sat underneath a relatively unhealthy expression of it for me um is that I was worried about the future i was worried about predicting the future which is what science is essentially doing um and i was also worried about changing the future which is what activism is essentially doing um and so uh you know climate denial happened in the 2010s uh and climate denial was was about um saying that we have no power to to influence earth we have no humans have no uh influence over the shape of the of the climate um and that science has no capability to know whether whether we do or not uh and that insulted me i was like how dare you, you know like that and of course it speaks to exactly the same thing which is that um humans have no uh influence when we take actions is that we're, we're sort of like these passive nothing these little units of flesh that are just roaming around and have no influence and i, I totally disagree with that that's my philosophy.
0: Okay, so so if you uh, you decide to write a book about you know climate change, I'm very interested in where you start with that because I've been reading a lot of them recently, and um, one that I'm really enjoying at the moment is a book by Rebecca Huntley. Uh, called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. And it's a, it's a really great book because it actually, funnily enough, she references many of the other books that I had read about climate change. And it's just a different take on it, which she, you know, she's a social researcher. You know, her business is very much the idea of how do you convince people? How do you talk to people about these things? But I imagine they're things that you had to think about yourself when you sit down to write something. And it's certainly some ground that you cover in the book is that, This idea that, you know, and something that I find incredibly powerful and must be so counterintuitive to somebody who started out with this idea that facts will solve everything. And as long as everybody knows the truth, then you can solve every issue is this idea that facts aren't enough. In fact, in some ways, you know, the idea of more reports and more science is the worst thing that they could possibly do with their time.
1: It's really counterintuitive. And I think some people actually find it offensive. Uh, because that's what they do like some people their job is to like scientists for instance uh, their job is to um, obtain information about the way of the world nature of the universe and then tell us about it and be like you you need to take these you know actions in society based on what we found uh, and um, obviously I, I, I'm i such a huge Rebecca Huntley fan I really loved her book um, she deals with that uh, challenge really well because it science communication suddenly stops being about how do you convince people of the facts and it actually becomes a bit more about um, how do you get people close to the facts? How do you get them swimming around in them and chewing them over and then using their own um, souls, you know, their own um, feelings and sentiment and understanding of life to apply that to, to how they do things in their life. Um And the other thing I think that I really like that Rebecca does is that she distinguishes between power. So, um, Will Anderson understanding a fact, uh, about climate science has a very different impact on the world than, uh, Scott Morrison understanding a fact about climate science or the CEO Chevron understanding a fact about climate science. And when I say understanding, I mean, really, truly having an emotional connection with, with what it means, um, and so, uh, you know, communicating, uh, the consequences of what happens if we don't take enough action on this, uh, to a Will Anderson versus communicating it to a Scott Morrison, um, suddenly become two really, really different things that are interlinked in very close ways. Um, yeah, I love the way, I love the way that she, that she talks about this because, um, it, it actually pays a lot to be um adaptable in how you talk about things um i would i talk about climate solutions very differently uh to someone uh if i if i somehow ended up in a room with the ceo of bp um i i'm pretty sure i would be saying something very different to what i'm saying now
0: well okay so that's um, interesting to so, me yeah. when you write a book then so mm-hmm. who is the book because if the message has to be tailored to, you know, the audience that you're speaking to for it to be effective and, mm. you know, that's something that I think about a lot in this you know, show and often I get feedback around oh, the show wasn't this or it should have been that and I'm like, well... I have a certain idea about what it is that I'm trying to achieve. And then the show hopefully fits into the parameters of that. What were the parameters of what you were trying to achieve with the book? Uh,
1: Something I realized pretty early on is that, um, I'm not actually good at talking to people who disagree with me. Um, I'm not, I'm not really, um, charitable or patient with them. Um, I, in fact, I get, I get pretty, um, (laughs) I get, uh, sometimes I get a little invective, you know, um, because I don't like, I don't like it when people misinform. Um, I, I, I also don't really like it when people are a little bit lazy. Um, like it, it kind of bugs me when people, uh, know that they don't need to try and they're just like, I can kind of cruise through life as like a Sky News host and just subsist on my own failures to understand topics as my, as my, definition of who i am as a person um and and it doesn't make me feel like helping them (laughs) um what i'm actually a lot better at doing um and twitter definitely made me realize this is that is that i can talk to people who kind of already tacitly agree with me but help equip them with an understanding of the details of why they're right about the particular view that they hold um And so what, I'm sure that you've seen this in pretty enormous quantities, given your profile on social media, but sometimes people agree with things that are both correct, but they're agreeing with it for a reason. They came there because they vote a certain way or they grew up in a family with certain views. Um, And suddenly, as communicators, we're faced with, like, to make a decision between, like, do we just kind of lie back and soak that up like, ah, oh, fantastic, you know, these people all love renewable energy, um, because they vote for a party that also likes renewable energy. So that's fine, you know, it's okay, let, it, let, let that happen, let it so- wash over you. I don't think that that's actually a responsible thing to do. Um, I think that you need to put some effort into talking to them and saying thank you for liking this particular thing. Um, as someone with a background in like the data of renewable energy, I actually want to help you understand that you can use your energy to make this particular thing better. You can use your passion and your support to say, um, I really love this policy on like renewables, but, um, you can pair it with this other thing that will help renewables be better for people in the future, as opposed to just letting them kind of roll out willy nilly. Um, then I think that that's, that's actually a really healthy thing because you you then start to inculcate um, a bit of an instinct for even if you like something, there's always a good way to make it better. And you also start to educate people about the details of like why it's okay that they like the thing that they already like. Um, and I don't know if doing that particular thing, which is basically communicating to people who already agree with you, is a particularly well-liked or well-acknowledged thing. I think that um, there's always this instinct of like, no, 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 you need to be reaching out across the aisle and you need to be talking to um, your opponents and um, you need to be convincing the climate deniers or uh, you need to be convincing the skeptics. Um, and, I, and I kind of, I disagree a little bit um, with that being the primary or only thing that you do. Um, I think that if you talk to people who agree with you, but you're like, just refine it you know <laughs> like don't don't um uh don't uh misrepresent why this thing is good because if you do that then it may not actually end up being as good as you hope it is um and so this happens with a lot of climate change solutions right so not 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 climate science but the things that you roll out to help fix climate change um people support uh tree planting for instance right people really have a strong sense of understanding that it's an environmental action, um, that it is, that it is a good thing to do. Um, but in the context of climate change, you actually need to be a bit, a bit careful with tree planting. Um, because if you have a lump of coal and you burn it, that carbon goes into the atmosphere. Um, and then if you grow a tree to suck that carbon back, it doesn't go back into the ground. It goes into a tree, right? Well, it goes into the, like the soil around it and it, Basically, it stays on the surface. If a bushfire tears through that area where you planted that tree, that carbon is re released back into the atmosphere. Uh, if, it, if, the coal, if the lump of coal had stayed in the ground, a bushfire wouldn't have had any impact, right? Um, it would have stayed on the ground and it would have been the same amount of carbon. So. Um, you can't
0: use tree planting. It's an unlikely example, though. I can't imagine we're going to have any problem with bushfires in the future. So that was that was last summer. I that was the last all, bushfire all done I heard. Yeah. for Another hundred years. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, can I just do a quick aside on that? Because um, uh, I'm just Please. something that I've been doing over the past two or three days um, has been paying a lot of attention to California. Um, mm-hmm. My brother lives in San Francisco um, in the Bay Area and uh you know so i like the main reason i pay attention to it is because uh of course i worry about about him and his family and all that sort of stuff uh but then i started reading uh, so there was a blackout in california uh, th- there was rolling blackouts uh california has the state's highest penetration of uh it has the second highest penetration of solar in the u.s um there's a big a state government scheme to go to 100 renewables by 2035 uh there are wild bushfires tearing through uh that state uh it's really it's really really horrible um people are being evacuated uh it's all the word unprecedented is coming a lot up a lot uh in coverage there's um videos of people and trucks driving through um you know a forest road with just fire on both sides and winds just sweeping like flames of fire in front of their cars and every australian is seeing this and just being like this all looks very familiar um and so you know uh when i when australia's bushfires happened i was here in norway and people were sort of looking at it going from afar and just being like oh that's sad you know that australia is experiencing that and i don't think there was a good understanding of how this is something that will happen more and more, not just in Australia, but in in many different countries too. And then on top of that, um, you know, uh, as soon as California had that blackout, uh, everyone was blaming renewables, including Donald Trump. Uh, he's just like, "Oh yeah, you know, of course, uh, of course, the rollout of renewables there uh, has caused this blackout." And you know, you'll, you'll remember that bit in the book uh, where. Uh, there was a blackout in South Australia and everyone blamed renewables. And yeah, it's just, it's so frustrating to see that stuff happening over and over again uh, around the world. But yeah, uh, sorry, what was I talking about? Yeah, bushfires. So um, I've completely forgotten. Trees, planting trees, trees. yeah. So uh, yeah. I'll
0: take you back. I will take you back to something because mm. I, I think it's a really fascinating idea, mm. which is the value of speaking to those who vaguely already agree with what you're saying because i actually think this is an incredibly underexplored area and really to be honest is the is if there is a philosophy behind why i started this show it probably was that philosophy because you know and it's the reason i'll never have sam newman or you know andrew bolt or pete evans on the show it isn't this sort of show people kind of will know that if there's someone on this show it's someone that I am interested in, that I probably share some sort of... This is not an adversarial podcast. I like mm. to get people on and, you know, actually listen to what they have to say about the world. So to be able to do that, to create an environment where somebody can really share their thoughts openly, they need to be people that I, to a certain extent, already share a worldview with. But then... I think what is most interesting is then you realize that all these people have different priorities. They have different ways they view the world. That's why the conceit of the philosophy came up because I just thought it was a very neat way to show that all these people who might get grouped under some sort of, you know, you're all these sort of people actually have very different perspectives Mm. on how they live their life, different levels of things they're passionate about and different levels of expertise. And they're the people that I most like to be like told that I'm wrong or picked up by because if somebody from the complete opposition says well you this was wrong or you haven't thought this through or here's a different perspective on this I'm often I'm quite deaf to that because I don't trust the rest of what they say so why would I trust them on this whereas and I'll just use a specific example so Tim Minchin was on this show and you know I love Tim and Tim had a whole bunch of things to say about the nature of how we interact and And you wrote an article, a response to some of the things that Tim said. And I found that really fascinating as well, because you're somebody that I've enjoyed your work and you're, I'm much more interested and willing to engage in your criticism or your, you know, different perspective on that than I would be if that had been written by somebody outside the circle. So what you're saying about the idea of like, people in the old days would dismiss it as preaching to the choir, but I don't think it is that at all. I think it is about taking a group of people who are already listening to what you have to say and then expanding the depth of their knowledge and experience. Yeah,
1: and and um, what you find when you do this is that people, as a communicator, as like a technology-focused communicator uh, and sort of a science communicator as well, is that people... Lot, they love being empowered um with language, not not facts. So so um I'll explain what I mean by that. So uh you know uh when it comes to renewables the a really common complaint is that like they can't provide baseload power, right? They the wind goes up and down and the sun goes up and down. Um <clears throat> and so you can't use them as like the bulk of a grid you can't have them as a backbone of a grid. Um so that's incorrect but the reason why it's incorrect uh, is tough to describe, right? So so there's no uh, common language for talking about uh, the way grid works in, in society. <laughs> like, there's just no real... Uh, there's no words, honestly, uh, besides technical words that, that I have used in the past among colleagues, you know, in the energy industry. Um, but so then you start seeing the language of people coming into this technical, technical debate, right? So people talk about wind being lazy or, um, a failure, you know, it fails to provide when it's called upon by the the good people of the grid. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't really sort of talk like that in in the technical world. So then you then have to say, okay, what I'm going to do is explain to you, uh, why you can do this, but I'm going to use, uh, language that you can e- first of all easily understand and use with someone else. You can then you can go, go up to someone else and say, well, uh, first of all we can forecast wind. Secondly, uh, you can have diverse areas where you install wind farms, uh, and thirdly, you can have new forms of storage that help uh, integrate wind and solar as well. Um, it's a really tricky thing to do, but people don't want the facts; they want the language. They want the they want the words to use to describe these things right the the facts the facts are really good um <laughs> i don't want to malign facts at all but um they really if you just kind of carpet bomb people with them um then nothing happens it just kind of bounces off their heads and they're like even people who agree with you um they don't really take it in you need to you need to weave it into into language um so yeah, that's that's kind of why I do what I do. But it's like um uh I think it works, you know. I think um I think many people do this, but no one but no one wants to admit admit it because they're just like this like you said, there's this cultural stigma against it.
0: Uh so okay. How do you write about a topic like climate change? And obviously, you know, you start with whole bunch of facts and the truth is that you know the facts are particularly pleasant reading at the moment as you already mentioned you know some of some of the damage the considerable amount of the damage is already done you know there is more damage to come but some of it is already done and we're going to see the manifest we're already seeing some of the manifestations of that and we're going to continue to see manifestations of this one of the things that i've got in the habit of saying and i've got to get out of the habit of saying is that you know what the covert pandemic is practice you know if anyone thinks this is the worst thing we're going to go through in the next 10 or 20 years then well i hope it is i hope this is the worst thing that we go through but i can't imagine that it is i imagine you know our response to this is only practice for what our response is going to have to be for the you know increasingly extreme effects of you know climate change on our planet so I have gone through a period of, you know, really kind of climate anxiety and I've certainly gone through a period of, you know, doomism, as you know, you, you you cover both of those things in the book and I recognize a little bit of me, you know, at different points in my life. You know, being that, how, how did you avoid, you know, getting stuck in those places, the place where you're just overwhelmed by, once you know these facts, you're overwhelmed by the anxiety of the situation we're in, or even that idea of, well, we can't do anything about it.
1: Yeah. I had a metaphor in the book that I had to cut out because it was, it was a completely ridiculous metaphor, (laughs) but I like it. Um,
0: Well, this is the right place for it. Give it to the the philosophy podcast. We love a ridiculous metaphor.
1: (laughs) The reason I took it out is because there's a much easier way of saying what I'm about to say, which is that there are a lot of easy wins. um, But I don't think we've processed what it means to be in the situation that we're in. So, okay. Uh like you say, there's already a lot baked in to our, our planet. Um and there is no technological out for this. There's uh we are just gonna have to sit in our spots and he- we're gonna get hit in the face by these changes. Uh and the changes that are already baked in are bad. Um they're they're not um <laughs> they're not like gonna manifest equitably either. They will they will they will hit people in developing countries. Um, they will hit people who are already hit hard, um, the hardest, and that sucks. Let's really, uh, we, we'll have to dedicate most of our, our time and effort to protecting those people who are so vulnerable to these um, first stage impacts of climate change. Uh, and so that freaks me out a lot. Uh, and and the reason it freaks me out is because I have a bit of doomism in me as well, but purely in the sense that, um, I don't think that humanity currently has the social structures in place to make our response to those disasters, uh, something that focuses on equity. So, so, um, you know, uh, the example that, um, I used in the book, but it also got cut out because it's a relatively short book, uh, with Hurricane Katrina, um, you know, a disaster related to climate change. Uh, and of course hit, hit black communities in America so hard, um, and then faced really horrible inequalities in the response to the disaster as well. So I think a lot of fundamental things need to change. Uh, but at the same time, after that anxiety, after that pain, when you think about that future, um, again, uh, there's another future, <laughs> um, where we bake in, uh, a greater sense of fairness and justice into the fabric of society. So, um, that when it comes to a disaster, the, the default response, uh, is to take people who are hit the hardest and give them the most help rather than the least help. Um, and I think if we can do that, then it'll, it'll flow down to ever. It's the, it's the trickle up effect, I guess, <laughs> where if you help the most vulnerable people the most, Uh, then actually everyone else will will benefit too. Um, So that leads into the other part, uh, into the solutions. How do you, the stuff that we still have to control, the the, um, options that still sit in front of us, um, you know, the difference between, uh, I try not to use degrees and I try not to talk about the future in terms of degrees of warming, but I want to give you an example of the difference in magnitudes. We're currently at about 1.1 degrees of warming. And the changes that we're seeing in the world are pretty severe, right? So there's um, <clears throat> uh, the bushfires in Australia, the floods in Bangladesh, uh, bushfires in California. Just to give you a few examples from the last few months, um, those those are pretty bad. One point five degrees will be very, very hard to avoid uh, based on our current actions. It's still a possibility, but but it will require a really massive global change. It might, it might happen, um, but most people even people working in the space people working on climate action probably tell you probably not two degrees comes up a lot um and that's sort of set as a benchmark of like it's pretty feasible There's like a 50 50 chance in terms of like looking at possible futures um two degrees is pretty bad too um what i'm talking about here when it comes to solutions is, is the difference between two three and four uh and the differences between those worlds between those uh parallel universes that we that would be created if we fail to take action today um is is really uh i can't really it's it's tough to describe it without sounding ridiculous uh the pavements melt you know i i don't know why that just stuck with me because you know all these futures describe uh the impacts on human life and human welfare very accurately. And I don't want to repeat any of it because, uh, all you need to know is that you don't want to be in these futures, but pavements melt. I don't know why that stuck with me. Um, because it's just so the pavement is just like the solid thing that you never think about. It's just there when you step outside and you walk on it. Um, maybe it's a nice metaphor for like how the stuff, stuff that breaks down will be stuff that we always took for granted and we always thought would be solid. Uh, so those are worlds we can avoid. Uh, and the thing that translates from reading about those futures from like anxiety and fear and grief, uh, into whatever I feel today, which is generally infuriated optimism, uh, I described it uh, on ABC, um, is, is the way that all these potential actions that I outline in the book, they have been denied for ludicrous reasons right like they weren't we didn't fail to act on climate change in australia from the 1990s because of some like uh huge massive like baked in thing in australia right like uh it wasn't like we couldn't have done anything no matter how hard everyone tried uh we actually got pretty close uh, a couple of times to doing pretty damn well um, and going from pretty damn well to 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 becoming like this global um, leader in climate action. Uh, and I detail that a bit in the politics chapter. Um, and so the fact that we've gotten close and the fact that we keep failing for um, reasons that are just a little bit silly um, is actually something that strangely gives me hope. Um, because it shouldn't be hard to break that twig, you know, it's not like a, uh, it's not like something is, is blocking us that is like this, uh, huge thing that we can't deal with. We're being blocked by something tiny. Uh, we're being blocked by something that is, we've been led to believe, uh, is really threatening. And so, uh, the example I use in the book of this is, uh, there's this narrative that emerged, of uh, if we take action on climate change, the Australian economy will be destroyed, uh, and it's a lie. Uh, if we take action on climate change, um, purely from an economic perspective, and I don't think we should talk about things purely from an economic perspective. But if if you want to play in that space, things would be better. Every single piece of modelling, uh, research, like um, all these reports from people who hate climate change, people who love climate change. Every single one spits out this result, which is just that if you make a healthier society with upgraded technology that is more diversely owned by more people, things are better. Uh, And so if you break that uh, narrative that has been created that climate action would make your life worse... Uh, then people then start to support it. And then you start seeing things like that happened in October, 2019, where all of a sudden people are like, Oh my God, I need to get out on the streets and march for this because it's not just, it's not just like those degrees Celsius futures that are being denied to me. It's actually right now, uh, a cleaner air in cities or like, you know, owning a, like a, a better vehicle, having access to more walkable cities. Um, all these things are being denied to me right now today. Um, and so, um, I'm obviously a lot more optimistic about, um, solutions, the things that we can do to prevent emissions that I am about adapting to, to climate, uh, change that's baked in. Um, but I also just want to quickly mention, uh, some of the, some of the amazing like youth activist groups that actually work on adaptation. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty mean about doomism in the book, um, because I think it grates against my philosophy that I mentioned earlier, which is that we have some control over the future. Um, so I don't want to like conflate people who work on the stuff that's already baked in with, with doomism. Doomism is a really sort of like, um, it's doomism manifests as an excuse to do nothing. And there are people who Like, their entire life, their existence, and these are young people, they work on dealing with the stuff that they can't change, and I can't even grapple with what kind of emotional, like, challenge that must be for them. So I have incredible respect for the people who are like, I can't stop this impending crisis, I can't stop a disaster, but I'm going to help people cope with it and understand it, and then also make the responses more fair and equitable Ah. That's just like I can't understand how they deal with that it's really it's scary to me um because I play in the I play in the you can control the future space of climate change you can you can turn levers and change society and change views that that will reduce emissions and you know every molecule that you keep in the ground of carbon has some physical impact on the atmosphere there's there's uh the stuff that we've done so far has an impact the uh, the a bit in the book about, um, the amount that you pay, you know, on your electricity bill has had an impact on climate change. You, you, you may not have even known that you were doing it, but you have been a climate action person, um, for, for a decade. And it has made an actual difference, <laughs> like Australia's, um, emissions. Um, one of the only reasons that they're leveling off right now is because of renewable energy being deployed on the grid paid for by by you um you you did that that's like um your actions made a difference so yeah that's my that's the dichotomy i deal with
0: i could honestly talk to you for hours but i'm aware of the fact that it's the middle of the night where you are now and uh I, i probably have to you know feed the dogs or something. You know, it's Monday morning here, so... <laughs> um, I, they've, they've been very good. They, they must still be in bed because I was expecting that they would burst in about halfway through our chat. So um, so I, I, there's some standard questions that I ask on the show and I would love to ask you those questions. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I have an inkling that, that where this one might go based on the Richard Dawkins <laughs> revelation from early, but what do you think happens when we die? Uh,
1: obviously... You Know <laughs> when we die, we um uh our, the our brains stop functioning There's uh, little bits of electricity stop zapping around in our brains, and we stop uh feeling things and thinking things, and we go back to what we were before we were born, which is you know just, a, just not having any uh cohesion as a bunch of molecules. Um, but uh, oh man, I feel so gross describing it like that because. Mm. Purely because the group of people who do that is is like a is like that's their thing, and they define themselves as that. I, I, they're such gross people. <laughs> like, <I> just, <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> the what? Like atheism. The atheism movement just became so like it has this big like misogynist MRA element to it, and then it's got this big like you know. Uh, islamophobic kind of racist element to it as well i don't know what happened no i know what happened like it's obviously you know uh the it was a group that attracted people who um a lot of young men um mostly white you know wealthy countries who um uh found a group that let themselves convince themselves that um they were using logic and evidence as something that let them have one over people who they may not have normally had one over. Um, but they weren't necessarily trained in how to use logic and evidence paired with like an empathetic approach to like, human existence. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I don't think too much about, um, I don't think too much about what happens after, I actually never really used to think about it too much, um and it never really used to make me feel too nervous because um i'm i'm thirty four now um and I still feel like I'm pretty young and there's a lot to do in my life um so uh that's okay from a personal perspective but one thing the one thing that used to bother me is I didn't like knowing that there would be a time when I wouldn't know the news uh like <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, so I would suddenly one day stop existing, and I would stop getting updates on the trajectory of our species uh, every day. And then I, I felt a bit of like, oh, I'm going to miss out on that. I'm going to miss out on the news.
0: <laughs> it's which is it's a interesting to me you to... say that because I've like I was raised on news. I, I was a journalist for a little bit. You know, well I did a journalism degree and barely worked in journalism, but um, mm. but you know. I have a journalism qualification, and I used to, um, you know, read five newspapers a day, you know, every morning. And I worked in the Canberra Press Gallery for a while, and you know, you become. I grew up in an age where you know the internet started to happen, and the idea of like that constant updating of the twenty-four hour news cycle and Twitter and all these sort of things, you know, for somebody who loved the news as much as I loved the news, it became this constant engagement in the news, but. I don't know what it has been. I think some of it has just been a conscious uncoupling, you know, that I've been trying to do with the news, which is that some of this news isn't for me. Like trying to just go, I don't need to be across all the news. Like there are just, sometimes it's more important to know what's going on in my own house than it is to know what's going on in the rest of the world. And how do you, as someone who I imagine loves you know as you've just said loves being engaged in the news how do you balance the level of engagement you have in that outside world versus the level of engagement you have in your actual day-to-day substantial life
1: Mm. i do a similar thing I, i i just i just box it into it took a lot of effort to box it in um because it was like boxing in this like cloud this like buzzing cloud that was always above my head um and then to actively decide to say I'm not gonna let that buzz around my head a hundred percent of the time. I'm just gonna have little designated time blocks where I open it up, and then it releases this, um, you know, the the wasps of the news. <laughs> it's just sort of like, <laughs> seeing me in my face repeatedly, and then putting each wasp back in the box and saying, "Okay, that's the news of the day." Um, that took a lot of effort. I mean, I, I have a kid now, you know, and she, and she, um, the experience of um being around her is just so incredible and rich and just totally unmissable. I before I had a kid, I was like, oh, I wonder if I'm gonna be tempted to like play with my phone or like look at the news or read Twitter or listen to a podcast when I have a baby and I'm trying to look after the baby. And I don't know, maybe I just got lucky and had like a really, you know, social and friendly and excellent and funny kid. But um, I never, I ne- I'm never tempted to open the wasp box <laughs> when I'm like, I want to, I don't want to sit there and doom scroll through Twitter when um I'm around her. Of course, now I worry about what updates on her life after I die because I want to know. Like I'm like, I just like I want to follow what you do. You know, I think you're gonna be like an incredible person that does amazing things. I want to keep up to date with your news. <laughs> Um, but I'm just going to have to deal with that. Obviously, I can't live for forever.
0: Do you have a, a parenting uh, philosophy? Is there something that you think is really important, you know, as a parent that you've already, you know, decided this is something that I really think is important?
1: Uh, I guess in line with a lot of my other philosophies, it's it's more about being like anti-other stuff than it is about being like pro-my-own philosophy. Like there's some stuff that I see that I'm just a bit like, um, I can't believe... Um, that, uh, that people get sucked into these ideas. I think if I were to summarize it in one simple go, it's basically don't let your own fears govern your decisions. So like, um, and I, and I'm, I'm filled with fears, you know, just, I'm such a, uh, you know, my kid will just be like, you know, jumping from one rock to another rock. Uh, and I'm standing there watching it. And in my mind, I'm just like, Ooh, that's, uh, that's, uh she's like, if she slips, it's, it will be like a wet rock or something. Um, and then of course you start having that moment in your head where you're like, no, 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 I don't want to be a helicopter parent. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to just like hover above her. She needs to, if she slips and falls, whatever, you know, like we'll take her to a hospital if it's something bad, but it's probably not going to be something bad. Um, and, and so that's a real struggle, but that's the overarching thing is that like, if I'm worried about her physical safety, or I'm worried about her being exposed to an idea that I don't think she can not handle, um, only use that like uh, sparingly. That that instinct, or that or that fear, um, it's a tough it's a tough thing to do. I'm not <laughs> I'm not designed to be not fearful.
0: <laughs> uh, two more questions, by the way. Uh, I'll do the proper plug at the start, but um, uh, I highly recommend people follow you online. The new book is called Windfall. Is it out already? Can people get it already you you sent me a copy which i appreciate very much but uh, is it available for purchase now
1: uh the technical release date is the first of september but uh people seem to have bought quite a few copies um so i think that a few booksellers have done a sneaky and made it available but i'm totally fine with that so Uh, If you're in Australia, um, it's pretty likely that you'd be able to find a copy
0: now. Well, if you're in Australia, um, you'll basically be hearing this on the day that it's officially released. So that's good timing. There we go. Look at that. Didn't actually (laughs) do that on purpose, but that feels like I'm much more professional at organising this podcast than I actually am. Uh, So two two final questions. One is, if you could have any skill in the world, any skill, you don't have to learn it. You don't have to have your 10,000 hours. You just magic wand style you can suddenly have that skill what skill would you like to have
1: I, I should probably say something work related but I don't want to I, the one thing
0: no this is yeah. personal indulgence this yeah, is okay. purely personal indulgence
1: I want to I want to I want to be able to play piano and sing like um like a trillion Nick Caves you know times that they compress into a single like, do you know what I mean like just just piano and just voice mm. I want to be able to 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 like create, like, a hurricane storm of a song and play it, you know, in that way Um, and have a song that you could write that could just be the most, like, mind-blowing, emotionally intense, um, dramatic, like, uh, performance um, that you can imagine. I play some piano and I do some singing from, like, you know, when I did high school... I never wanted to like study and of course I was very good at finding distractions and I found this old piano that we had um this like electronic keyboard um and I would so that would be my not studying thing is I would I would learn how to play songs on piano but like many people like you just sort of you stop practicing and you stop doing it um so and of course you get older and you also get less good at learning new things as you get older um and I would love to be able to just correct that and go, okay, uh, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to become a really wildly dramatic, um, piano performer. Um, I don't know why I love that instrument so much. Um, it just sounds like thunder when you play it. Like, it just sounds like this incredible, like, uh, it sounds like a fundamental weather system is changing when, (laughs) when you play it, I don't know, probably links in with climate change somehow.
0: (laughs) Uh, and final question. I have a time machine. You can go to any point in the future or the past. It's a round trip and you don't have to do something on behalf of humanity. That's the You don't have to go back and kill baby Hitler or any of those sort of things. <laughs> this is purely for your own indulgence. Uh, firstly, do you take the trip? Some people have decided they don't want to take a trip, but uh, you can go anywhere, to your own life, anywhere in history, anywhere in the future. It doesn't really matter. Where would you like to go on my time machine?
1: Uh <laughs> I just, I find it wild that someone would be like, I don't want to take a trip. I'm too busy. I, don't, I know. I, don't I always think that.
0: I'm like, a, a, it's a hypothetical trip. You don't actually have to take the trip. You could just do the thought exercise, but you know, sure. Um, but yes. Okay. What about you?
1: I think, I think I would actually like to go. Oh, there's the dog at the door. I would like to, um, what was that? Did you say there was a dog at
0: your door? No, no. I, I said that the dog is at the door. You know, I said the dog was going to come in at some stage. I literally just heard the dog at the door. I was like, oh, there we go." That made yeah. it.
1: Um, um, all right. I think that I would. I think that I would go back to London. I was born in London, um, and yep. I, um, I would want to go back to the, like, the week I was born and just watch my family do you know what i mean so so and just like just yeah. see the impact of me as a new baby on my family obviously i know my family well um but that i was born at a time when you know there weren't like smartphones um you know my dad took a lot of like home movies and stuff but it was when we were older it was like when i was like sort of 5 and older um and so pre-five I was the third kid out of three kids and so they didn't really take a lot of like photo they went like oh it's a baby (laughs) because I've seen two babies before um (laughs) and so there's not a lot of documentation of my existence pre-five years old and so I would love to just take that trip and just like put on a you know like a twirly mustache and big glasses or something um and just somehow (laughs) (laughs) And just watch what my family dynamic was like um, and just kind of see... I'm not so much interested in what I was like as a baby, but just to see what my family was like. Because it's just this sort of black hole of like... There's no physical documentation um, of beyond a few photographs um, of like the little... And I would love to see the little stuff like, you know who's getting annoyed at who and like, um, uh, you know, what were my brothers doing to me? They were, you know, they're like, they were, they would have been like five and six at the time. So I'm sure they were doing like ridiculous stuff to me and like, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I think I, I could probably choose like a, like some significant historical moment or something and like,
0: no, yeah. I love that answer. That's a fantastic answer. You wouldn't be tempted to say hello. You wouldn't be able to tempted to go, "Hey, it's me from the future," and you know things work out okay. The, the, could you could you please warn people a little bit more about climate change? But other than that, things work I out think pretty it would well. Bring the mood
1: down to be like, "Oh, congratulations on bringing your life into the world." Uh, just a note: um, there's this thing called coronavirus, and there's this uh, climate, Donald Trump, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, bad news. <laughs> uh,
0: can Again, I thank you very much for doing this. I it super appreciate the fact that you've stayed up into the middle of the night to have a chat to me and it's just been really fun and really fascinating and um, thank you so much for agreeing to do the show. Um, I wish you all the best with the book and all your time in Oslo. How long is the time in Oslo? Is it a permanent move or is it, has it got a, a like a time period Period. It's a contract.
1: My my partner's uh, work is is on a contract. So it's uh, another three years. Um, But we might stay. We might come back. We're not sure. Um, I think we sort of. uh, It's been pretty hard. You know, uh, we we were meant to come back to Australia this year. Obviously, that got cancelled. And we have no idea of when we will be able to come back. So we're really missing everyone a lot. Um, And we're sort of like we're missing our family. We're missing our friends. Um, So. We're still not really sure what's going to happen, but coronavirus will probably change it somehow again in the future. So, no idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you very much, mate. I really appreciate no it. Good to be here.